Let me begin with a quote. I love this quote. The quote goes like this. The science of biology has enormously expanded of late. Our realization of the nature of life, our knowledge of its processes has been changed, deepened, and intensified. A great and growing volume of fact as it goes on, um, a great and grow, growing volume of fact about life as it goes on about us and within us becomes available for practical application. But this new material is still imperfectly accessible to ordinary busy people. The quote goes on, it's embodied in scientific publications, in a multitude of books, it's expressed in technical terms that have still to be translated into ordinary language. It's mixed up with masses of controversial matter and with unsound and pretentious publications. Finally, the quote ends, in the care of his health and the conduct of his life, the ordinary man draws far less confidently upon the resources of biology than he might do. He is unavoidably ignorant of much that is established and reasonably suspicious of much that he hears. I think that statement describes well the situation we now face here at the beginning of the 21st century. But in fact, those words were written close to 75 years ago, in the early part of the 20th century, by the famous novelist and intellectual H.G. Wells. The quote is taken from the introduction to a remarkable book, published in 1929, that Wells wrote in collaboration with the renowned biologist Julian Huxley and his own son, G.P. Wells, a book he called The Science of Life. A decade earlier, Wells had published another monumental tome, this one titled The Outline of History, a book in which he summarized the entire um, history of Earth, beginning with what was known at the time about the origin of the solar system, continuing through geological history, and then through all of human history up to the Great War, World War I, which Wells saw as a culminating event in the social evolution of humankind. Now, Wells saw his project, The Science of Life, as actually being even more difficult. As with his outline of history, Wells intended The Science of Life to be read by, following his quote, ordinary busy people, professionals, leaders in government or industry, or just curious, educated people looking to better understand the nature of the living world around them and how it impacted their lives. Wells's motivation was simple. He saw that the social, economic, and political significance of biology was expanding at an astounding rate, and he felt it was imperative to educate non-specialists about fundamental issues in biology and how they impact our daily lives as consumers, as citizens, and as decision-makers. At the same time, Wells saw that the rapid advance of knowledge in biology with increasing specialization, the development of ever more obscure technical jargon, the sheer volume of material made it increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for ordinary busy people to get some big picture overview of what the basic picture issues are and what's at stake with those issues. Well, it's almost 75 years later, and we find ourselves in much the same position as Wells described in 1929. Our knowledge of biology has exploded in recent years, and it continues to expand exponentially. And this knowledge plays an increasingly vital role in our everyday lives. My goal for this course is to provide you with a conceptual framework for understanding biology, much the same way that Wells attempted to provide a framework with his book, the Science of Life. As you might guess, it's Wells' book that inspires the name of this course, 
Although, of course, we'll take a very different perspective 75 years later from what Wells did. So, where do we begin? Where do we begin to try to pull all of this together? Well, like Wells, what I want to do is to begin at the very beginning with the origin of life. My reason for starting with the origin of life, starting the course with this, is that um, the question of how life arose is, useful, is a useful way to begin to define what life is. And in so doing, it's also a useful way to introduce how we're going to move through this material in the course. Now, it is possible to define life by giving a list of life's characteristics. This is often done in textbooks. For example, we might include on that list um, that living things are characterized by a high degree of orderliness, or that living things grow, or that living things require energy for their existence. Living things move. Living things reproduce themselves. All of these are true, but this kind of list can be very misleading because each of these characteristics can be applied equally well to any number of things that we agree are not living. For example, crystals are extremely or, uh, orderly. Um, a flame requires energy for its existence. Wind moves. Uh, oil droplets, in fact, can reproduce themselves in a sense if they grow too large and split apart. Trying to develop a list of the characteristics of living things also tends us to get bogged down in particulars. And this isn't what I want to do in this course. So instead, what I want to do is to ask more generally, what are the major issues that we need to explore in order to understand biology in its broadest terms? What are the themes around which we can organize our thinking about biology and provide a framework that will allow us to hang information together so that we can synthesize and understand it. So let's begin this lecture, begin this course, not with a list of what characterizes life, but instead by asking where life came from. We'll start this story in today's lecture. We'll continue it in the next lecture. But we're going to step back at the end of this lecture and take a look on the basis of this as to how this whole course will be organized. Okay, let's begin at the beginning. Physicists tell us that the universe, as we know it, began somewhere between 10 and 20 billion years ago. Uh, let's say about 15 billion years ago, for the sake of argument, at a moment in time they call the Big Bang. Now, our own star is comparatively young. Estimates are that it formed about 5 billion years ago, more or less. Um, you know, about 10 billion years after the Big Bang. Now, as our solar system was forming, cosmic dust that was left over after the formation of our sun gradually got swept up and lumped together to form planets. Planetary uh, scientists estimate that our own planet, the Earth, reached its present size, um, that is, most of this material had been uh, gathered together at about 4.6 billion years ago. And that's generally taken as the age of the planet Earth. Now, from a biologist's point of view, the early planet Earth was a really miserable place. The way that the planet was formed, with ever larger and larger chunks of material slamming into it, created an enormous amount of heat, and when the planet was first formed, it was molten. Now, my point is that we know that when the planet was first formed, it was no place where one could even conceive of life existing. But... 
Less than a billion years later, by, say, 3.5 billion years ago, the fossil record clearly shows that Earth was teeming with life. This life was in the form of simple cells resembling the bacteria we see around us today. This is pretty fast work, especially when you consider that it probably took about a half a billion years just for the crust of the Earth to form, for the Earth to cool enough to actually have rocks in an atmosphere. In fact, some scientists now argue, again, based on fossil evidence, that life might have been present on Earth even earlier, as early as a four billion years ago. Thus, my point is, is that somehow life appeared on the planet almost as soon as it was possible to do so. As soon as there were rocks to record the existence of life, we find evidence that life is there. So where did these organisms come from? Where did these single-celled organisms come from? Most biologists now think that life originated on the early Earth from non-living materials, the materials that were present there at the time of its formation, and that all of the diverse forms of life we see around us today have arisen from some common, primitive, single, original living entity. That's a pretty profound idea, I think. There are alternatives to this account. Many religious faiths, of course, hold that life was bestowed on the planet, on the non-living world, by the work of a deity. Another alternative, one that's been suggested repeatedly over the years by um, a number of scientists, is called the panspermia hypothesis, which suggests that actually the first life on Earth came from somewhere else in space. But both of these alternatives, in different ways nonetheless beg the question of how living matter could arise from non-living matter. And that brings our first question into focus. What's the minimal difference between living and non-living materials? I would argue that the most fundamental, the most essential difference, has to do with chemistry. Living things all have in common the fact that they are made of a particular class of chemical compounds. These are compounds that are built around the unique chemical properties of the element carbon. These kinds of compounds are called organic compounds. They're called that because they are uniquely associated with living organic things. So let me give you a little background about organic compounds. What I want to do is I just want to introduce the, the major kinds of organic compounds to you now because we're going to be using these terms throughout this lecture and of course the whole course. There are only four kinds of organic compounds, broadly speaking. The first kind are amino acids. These are the things that make up protein, which we're all familiar with. The second kind of organic compound are the nucleic acids. These nucleic acids are DNA and RNA, and a, a number of others, but DNA and RNA are the ones that we've all heard about. The third class of organic compounds are the carbohydrates. And of course, we've all heard of this. These are what we commonly call sugars or starches. In fact, uh, other carbohydrates are cellulose, the stuff that wood is made out of. Finally, the last general class of, of um, organic compound are the lipids. Now, lipids are what we commonly call fats in many cases, but actually lipids can take on a number of different forms. So, for example, 
uh, steroid hormones, steroids that athletes or others may take or that we produce ourselves are a kind of lipid. I wanted to introduce these. Now, we're not going to talk in any detail about those compounds right now. We're going to later in the course, as it becomes important for us to understand something, talk in more detail about each of those. But I wanted to give you that list because the point that we have to address now is how did any of these kinds of organic compounds arise from inorganic, non-living compounds, the stuff that makes up rocks and air and water and everything that was non-living and that was found on the planet when it was first formed. Now, suffice it to say that these organic compounds have particular and actually quite sophisticated chemical properties that are unique to them, that are actually quite different from the chemical properties of inorganic compounds. There's only one property that's worth noting at this point, and that is that the complex organic compounds that we find on the planet today, the stuff we're made of, is generally only produced through the action of living things. Another way to put this is that the creation of new organic matter depends on the existence of existing organic matter. You can't make more organic compounds unless you've got organic compounds to make them. We can be quite confident, given what we know about how the planet was formed, that the early Earth was entirely inorganic. A number of compounds, actually, um, uh, heavy metals and uh, another, a number of other um, inorganic compounds that have been identified. So the first question we have to ask about the origin of life is where did the organic compounds that life depends on, where is the stuff that life is made of, come from if, in fact, there was nothing to make it on the early Earth? This leads us to a pivotal experiment, actually the first important experiment that got people interested in this question of the origin of life seriously, was done in 1953 by Stanley Miller, who was at the time a graduate student at the University of Chicago. For decades, scientists had speculated whether the complex organic compounds characteristic of living things could have somehow been generated spontaneously on the early Earth. Now it's it's important to realize that spontaneous generation of organic compounds can't happen today. And by and large, this is because organic compounds are too fragile. I mean, you can imagine a complex compound, something that's made of a number of different elements, given enough time, given chance, might just come together. But if it did, it would immediately be taken apart. And this is because today our planet is just filled with the element oxygen. And oxygen breaks down organic compounds. Oxygen so-called oxidizes organic compounds. All that means is that oxygen pulls electrons out of organic compounds and turns them into inorganic compounds. So how could we even get the formation of any kind of organic chemistry if as soon as anything even began to arise by chance, it was just immediately taken apart? Well, earlier in the 20th century, two scientists... Alexander Oparin, who was a Russian, and J.B.S. Haldane, a British biologist, independently suggested that the early Earth actually did not have much or any oxygen. Oxygen is all around us now in the atmosphere. But, they suggested, that when the planet was first formed, the first atmosphere that developed was entirely composed of just a few gases. Hydrogen, methane, ammonia and water vapor. 
This would be like the atmospheres of uh, some of the outer planets that have been described, or the moons of the outer planets. And so Operin and Haldane independently suggested that the problem of spontaneous generation of organic compounds probably wasn't as big a deal because the early Earth didn't have an oxidizing atmosphere. So to test this hypothesis, what Miller did was set out to reproduce the conditions presumed to exist on the early Earth before life had arisen and to see if he could get the spontaneous, the spontaneous production of complex organic compounds. Now, Miller's experiment was set up this way. He had two flasks connected by a series of glass tubes. He had a lower flask in which he put water, and he heated this water gently with a little flame, a Bunsen burner underneath it. That heat would cause the water to evaporate, creating water vapor, which would circulate up into a higher flask. Now, in the higher flask, in the upper flask, Miller also added a number of other gases. He created an atmosphere of the early Earth consisting of hydrogen, methane, ammonia, and water vapor, just as Haldane and Operin had suggested. Now, Miller additionally exposed the gases in this upper chamber to um, a lot of energy by putting two electrodes in that chamber that would create electrical sparks. His idea here, he knew that you needed energy to create um, um, any kind of compound, certainly organic compounds. And so the idea here was that this sparking mimic, mimicked the lightning that would happen on the early Earth. There's a lot of volcanism on the early Earth. There was a lot of UV radiation. So presumably there was a lot of energy, and what Miller did was use these sparks to create kind of a lightning. Well, this is actually a pretty simple experiment, and you can almost do this in your own house. All of these materials are easily available. You could make the flasks, and you could replicate Miller's experimental results, which were spectacular. In only a couple of days, he found he could synthesize a whole range of different organic compounds, including some very complex ones like amino acids. Well, the scientific community immediately set out to replicate this. Many people replicated the experiment, and it quickly became clear that depending on the starting conditions, that is, depending on what recipe of gases you would put in that upper chamber and so forth, it was possible to spontaneously, without any pre-existing complex organic molecules, or what we might say abiotically, produce all of the amino acids that are normally found in living material, a whole range of complex carbohydrates and lipids, and most intriguingly of all, you can create nucleotides, which are the building block molecules that form the backbone of nucleic acids, DNA and RNA. The implication of Miller's experiment then and those that followed was that there appeared to be no trouble at all for complex organic compounds to rise spontaneously on the inorganic early Earth. And this is a first stepping stone to the origin of life from non-living matter. Now, on the other hand, you have to put this into perspective. As exciting as this result was, the organic compounds that Miller created were still relatively simple compared to the stuff that we're made out of. So what I want to do now is to ask, what else do we need, at a minimum, to get something from non-living material that we, would call uh, more, that we would call living. Well, for one thing, we have to take our synthesis of organic compounds even farther, beyond these organic building blocks, to get the very extremely complex molecules that living systems are really made of, things like proteins, DNA, and so forth. More importantly, 
we need three additional things to happen. Even if we get all of the stuff that we're made of, we have to have some way of reliably making more of it. In other words, we have to have a way of storing and retrieving information about the structure of these biologically important molecules because we can't rely on random chemical processes to produce more of them. We, organisms, can't rely on that. Second, living things need to have these biological molecules somehow aggregated and organized on a higher level. I mean, the stuff that life is made of are these complex molecules, but they don't just get all jumbled together. Instead, they're organized at levels of scales and in particular packages. So we need to figure out how these packages could start to get put together. To do that, we have to understand how order is developed, how it can be maintained by a, an aggregate of molecules. And the third thing that living um, things need to develop is a more reliable way to gain access to energy and to use that energy. As I told you, the synthesis of these complex molecules depends on a lot of energy. Miller used electrical discharges in his experiment to get that energy. Living things can't depend on lightning or volcanoes or anything like that um, to power themselves. Now, we're going to pick up on the question of the origin of life in the next lecture and specifically start talking about how we can get more complex organic molecules. But what I want to do for the remainder of this lecture is describe what we're going to do across the whole series of lectures to you in the context of these properties of life, these general properties of life that I've just described. Typically, a first university course in biology would take the following approach. It would start by talking about chemistry, basic chemistry background, building up to organic chemistry, and then it would move progressively to bigger and bigger things. After we talked about molecules, we might talk about cells. After we talked about cells, we'll talk about how cells come together to form tissues, organs, organisms. We'll look at how organisms form groups and populations, communities of species, and so forth, onto the really big stuff like ecosystems. We're going to talk explicitly about that hierarchy of biology in the third lecture of the course. And it's a fine way to organize a lot of details, but it makes it difficult to focus on the broader unifying principles of biology that I think are more useful for providing a pre an appreciation of the subject. So in order to better draw out these principles, what I've done is to organize this course in a fundamentally different way, dividing it into three sections each centered on one of the main conceptual themes I just listed. The first segment of the course is about information and evolution. Now, I've added evolution to the title of this section because, as we'll see, the concept of information in biology is inextricably linked to the way that information changes over time, which is what evolution is all about. We're going to, in this section of the course, begin by looking at information-bearing molecules, how they store information, how they take that information and move it to useful forms as they build more molecules. We're going to then see how that information can be transmitted to other organisms across generations through reproduction. 
And we're going to look at the consequence for the way that it's transmitted across generations, for how that information changes through time, which leads to evolution. And we're going to look at the consequence of evolution for how organisms have been transformed over the entire history of life and led to the diversity that we see around us today. Now, in the second segment of the course, which I've called Development and Homeostasis, we'll look at the issue of how the complex organization of living things comes into being and how this organization is maintained in the face of what are really considerable external and internal challenges to holding it all together. We'll begin this section of the course again by going back down to the level of the smallest things, back to the level of molecules, and we're going to ask how do we control the way that those molecules might build more molecules. That's going to lead us to the question of how we build an organism. How do we go from a single cell, say a fertilized egg, to a huge, multicellular, complicated organism like ourselves? We're not going to talk about the details of how we get from there to here, but we're going to talk about the principles which are required to allow us or any other organism to do so. That part of the course is also going to take us into an area that biologists would commonly call physiology. Once we've got a complex organism like ourselves with all of these different parts, those parts have to somehow talk to each other. They have to know how to work together. They have to send information between each other so that they can sort of get things working in the right way. They have to be able to respond to the outside. They have to be able to take on challenges like parasites that might want to come in and use us for their food source. And that brings us to the third segment of the course, which I've called energy and resources. This is where we're going to ask, where is all of the energy that is needed to make living systems work coming from? More importantly, not where it's coming from. I'll actually tell you where it's coming from. It's all coming from the sun, ultimately. But how do living systems capture that energy? How do they store it? How do they control its use? Again here, we're going to start at the level of the smallest things. We're going to start with um, molecules that are responsible for capturing energy from sunlight, molecules that are responsible for converting that energy into a storable form, molecules that are responsible for taking that energy and packaging it in particular ways that real organisms can use. We can't just light a fire to get energy if you're a living thing. You have to control the use of this energy very carefully. And we're going to look at how that's done on the molecular level. Now, the interesting thing about energy and other stuff we're made of, I mean, we're not just made of energy. We have to get a bunch of other things to provide the building blocks that we're made of. The interesting thing about energy and resources is that the way that they're used by organisms ultimately determines the highest levels of biological organization. It determines, for example, how many individuals of a particular kind of organism can live together in one place. That brings us to population biology. It determines how different kinds of organisms interact, an area that we call community ecology. Most organisms would like to eat other organisms. And that leads, then, to the way that biological systems are structured on the higher levels, above the level of the organism in populations, communities, and ultimately, as we'll see, in ecosystems. 
where these organisms of all sorts of different types have to interact together and um, somehow interact with the available resources on the planet. And that distributes them in particular ways. So finally, at the very end of the course, what I'm going to try to do is to summarize all of this information and take a look, the very end, at where life might be going. You just have to look around about us now and see that there are a lot of interesting challenges. This is what Wells was talking about when he said that biology is having such an impact. And he only could have imagined the impact that it's having now. We can take organisms and modify them and make them be what we want. We can create new organisms de novo. We can use those organisms to modify the way the rest of the planet is working. All of this is fine if we understand what we're doing. But sometimes we might get it wrong, or sometimes it might get a little out of control. Some of the things that we are doing ourselves as organisms, that we are doing ourselves as the dominant species on this planet, are changing the planet in ways that we're not fully understanding yet. And so I want to end by taking this view of where we've been and projecting it onto where we think life might be going in the future. And that's how the course will end.